0: We're of course continuing in our series, Part 5 today, Biblical and Reformed Worship. We don't have a lot of time, but I do want to kind of briefly remind you of our goal, because it's been a few weeks, to set forth the Reformed Doctrine of Worship, to demonstrate how it's supported by Scripture, to demonstrate... Why we have our doctrine of worship here in this church. What's the thinking behind it? What are the convictions behind it? Is it just personal preference that we don't have a band and a fog machine? Or we don't do this or that in worship? Um, To demonstrate what we do and why we do it. And we're kind of answering the question at this point in our study. How do we even approach the question of worship? From Scripture, how do we form our convictions from Scripture in the area of worship? And what I've been arguing arguing is that we we're, we're to take a theological approach. That um, it's not enough just to my oh, microphone's falling off here. It's not enough just to do a word study on you know where the word worship appears in the New Testament and form our doctrine of worship off of that. But it's necessary to approach it holistically, organically, to see how our doctrine of worship is connected to so many other things, so many other convictions and beliefs uh, regarding the Word of God. I've argued that it's like a sweater, it's all connected. You start pulling on the doctrine of God, and your doctrine of worship is going to be affected. It's going to fall apart as well, in a sense. So the last few weeks, we've been talking about Okay, our doctrine of worship is connected to our doctrine of Scripture. This, for example, is why Roman Catholicism is what it is. They do not hold to this principle of sola scriptura. They believe that church tradition, the teachings of men, are on par with Scripture. And so they can form a worship based upon, you know, they can add things into their worship that are not found in Scripture, because they are found in the teachings of church history and of popes and of councils. This is why the Reformation, one of the reasons why the Reformation happened. Martin Luther stood and said, "Here I stand. My convictions are bound by the Word of God. Show me these things in the word, or I refuse to recant what I've said about the church." And so we've seen the doctrine of worship. If we're going to have a right theology of worship, we've got to have a right theology of Scripture that it is our only guide in matters of life and godliness, and it is sufficient as well. If it's not found in Scripture, our conviction at this church is it should not make its way into the worship service. We've talked about the doctrine of worship in light of who God is. The character of God and His attributes inform our worship our understanding of who God is will affect the manner in the, in the ways in which we worship. I talked about the fact that um, uh, Islam, for example, sees God as a God showing no mercy, a God who hates his enemies, who demands total submission at the edge of the sword. And that you know, comes out in how they worship. And how them prostrating themselves on the ground and, and completely humbling themselves and um, such. So and we talked about the other extreme, a very casual approach to God will lead to a very casual approach to worship as well as if you're just hanging out with an old friend. So we need to keep his character and his attributes in mind so that we know how to properly respond. If you don't have an awesome view of God, you would never respond in reverence and humility and adoration. We talk about the Creator-creature distinction as well. And how that always must be kept in mind that God is not just like us. That He is different. That He is both quantitatively and qualitatively different. He's not just a bigger version of us, but He's distinct. He is completely different than us. He is a different being than us. And so we need to keep that in mind. And we talked specifically last time we began to talk about the doctrine of worship in light of who we are as sinners. Our view of sin is going to affect our worship. This is where total depravity comes into play. One of the points, the five points of Calvinism, or I should say, the kind of standard Reformed doctrine of what sin is and how it affects us. As I'm going to show today, it it affects how we worship. Our view of whether we are totally depraved or whether there's a little bit of good in us will affect how we respond in worship and what we think can please God. And that's kind of where we're at. That's what we're talking about. We talked about two weeks ago the offering of Cain in Genesis 4. And I argued, i got a little pushback on this, but I argued that Cain's offering was rejected because he had a deficient understanding of his sin. Remember that? Cain offers... Fruits and vegetables, Abel offers a lamb from his flock. God had regard for Cain and his, excuse me, Abel and his sacrifice, but the text says that he had no regard for Cain, and not just for Cain who was approaching him in unbelief, but no regard for his sacrifice as well, and argued that Cain was the first Pelagian, the first one to say, oh, there's a little bit of good in me. Sin hasn't affected me. I can approach God as an equal and just bring Him something out of my fruits and vegetables. Right? Out of my flock. While, uh, out of my produce. But Abel was different. He understood that God demanded blood because he was a sinner. That their blood had to be shed in order to make offering, in order to reconcile to God. And so Abel was accept it. And so I argued, again, that Cain had a deficient theology of worship because he had a deficient theology of sin. That was at the ultimate root of why his offering was not accepted. There we go. A bloodless offering demonstrated he did not see himself in need of atonement. So our plan for today is we're going to continue the doctrine of worship in light of who we are as sinners in need of sustaining grace. And we're definitely not going to get to it this week, but next week, the doctrine of worship in light of the Gospel. We're going to conclude this, how do we study, by looking at, okay, how does the doctrine of the Gospel, the revelation of what God has done for us in Christ, now affect our worship and help us understand what true biblical worship is. Any questions at this point before we move on? So I just want to briefly recount what we believe from our confession about sin and how it affects us. In the London Baptist Confession, chapter 6, It talks about how our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And we in them, that means we fell with Adam and Eve in their sin. We are guilty and held guilty and liable for the sin of Adam and Eve. And that corrupted nature that they have is passed down to us as well. We in them, whereby death came to all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in the faculties and parts of soul and body. So sin had a devastating effect upon us. And if you don't believe that, just look around us in this world, right? From this original corruption, this is original sin, right? That we sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. From this original corruption, original sin that we're born into, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. And from this do proceed all transgressions. Something got cut out there. So, it's because of our inclination towards sin... that our transgressions then come. Right? Again, we sin because we are sinners. That is our nature. We do not become... Excuse me. We do not sin because we commit sin. We sin because of who we are. So I just want to point out, this is not asserting absolute depravity, but there is is asserting total depravity. Uh, Not absolute depravity as if mankind is now as worse or as bad as he could possibly be. That's not what total depravity means. It's not that man is as possibly evil as he could be. It's just saying that the penetrating nature of corruption reaches to every part of us. It means there's not some part of us that is free from this defilement. It's not like our emotions are without sin. It's not that our thinking only is without sin. Or our inclinations is without sin. It's not as if sin only touches one part of these things. The body, the soul, the emotions, the mind, the heart. No. Total depravity just means that every part of us, our thinking, our hearts, our emotions, our actions, are all tainted by sin. Sin. It reaches every part of us. And so it continues and said, okay, this corruption of nature during this life even remains in those who are regenerated. Those who are saved. Christians. Believers. Those who have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And although that sin is pardoned in Christ, it's mortified, yet both itself and the first motions, the first inclinations towards sin, are truly and properly sin in that sense that we're still inclined towards all evil. Our hearts still gravitate naturally, most comfortably, towards that which is opposed to God. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism says, um, I'm quoting it from memory, so I can't remember, but it says something to the effect of, um, I naturally... God requires us to love God and neighbor, but by nature, I hate God and neighbor. That's my nature. Our natural inclination is to hate God and hate our neighbor. Even after we are indwelled with the Spirit of God, we are still pulled in that direction by our flesh. So, even after conversion, after the Holy Spirit indwells, we, ha- we still have a corrupted nature, the flesh which touches every aspect of our being, our mind, our will, our emotions. And so, we must be constantly brought back to the light of God's Word for instruction and direction, including in the area of worship. Again, what I'm trying to hit on here is that I guess maybe my next slide says it, but. What I'm trying to say here is that we are going to be inclined towards idolatry in worship because of sin. We're going to be inclined towards things that please us rather than things that please God. And so we must be aware of this. So we must come back to the Word of God. So we must form our doctrine of worship knowing that we're inclined towards distorting worship. A couple of scriptures here. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. It means it lies to us. Okay? That's what it means. It's not meaning it lies to other people. It means that it lies to us. Our own hearts deceive us. It's desperately sick or desperately wicked. And who can understand it? Who can understand the human heart? Well, we cannot, but God can. And that's why He's given us His Word. Of course, Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. They've all together become worthless. No one does good, there's no fear of God. Again, this is who we are by nature. Now this is, of course, the process of sanctification is the restoration of the image of God in us. But it is a process and it is guided by the Word. We are sanctified by the Word of God. So the implications of this, related to our doctrine of Scripture, but do we have what it takes to please God in and of ourselves? Or must we be instructed and guided by His Word, lest we fall into idolatry? Obviously, I'm arguing for the latter here. Do we approach God casually as equals, as if we have not sinned against God, or are we always dependent upon His grace and mercy, needing cleansing even daily? Cleansing. that's one reason why we have a confession of sin. I forgot, I had coffee here. <laughs> How could I do that? Trent, you're supposed to remind me. There's a coffee being wasted on the table. That's one reason we have a confession of sins in our worship service. I, I, I want to be reminded, and I want you to be reminded, that Proper worship is only, um, we, we only, we only offer proper worship when we first come humbly and repentantly. There's a process to proper worship. We don't just walk in and say, "Ooh, alright God, me and you, we're cool. Right? There's an acknowledgement that we've offended our Creator we've broken His law, that we stand guilty, and that we are pulled naturally into all wickedness. And so, we must come saying, Lord, I've sinned. I need Your grace. I need forgiveness. I need the cleansing blood of Christ if I'm to please You and to offer worship that is acceptable. Can we default back to whatever feels right or whatever works best? Well, that seems to you know, bring in the crowds. Let's do more of that. Oh, I had the best worship experience this morning. Which can be a very good thing. We can all have wonderful worship experiences. But ultimately, we have to realize that unless these experiences are informed and guided by the Word of God, they very easily fall looking to idolatry. So, the conclusion, what I'm trying to argue, is we are not competent in and of ourselves to devise God honoring worship naturally. If we follow our own natural or even common sense inclinations, we will get it exactly wrong. This is a very uniquely reformed belief. Just want to put that out there. Okay, this is not something that most. Christian traditions in our land today would agree with. Well, God loves us. He understands. We need to do what best convinces us to... What, what, what we, what we, we need to do what helps us connect with God the best. We need to focus on what's inspiring to us and to other people. We need to focus on what is attractive to outsiders so they will want to come in. Just a side note here, how subtly the Great Commission has been reversed in our day. Instead of Christians going out into the world, our churches now are focused on we need to get the world to come to us. That's why worship at this church is so different, so odd, in some sense. I mean, I, I've heard it many, many times. Oh, unbelievers, were never going to come into our worship service. Is that a bad thing, Pastor Nathan? Well, I want unbelievers to come into our worship service. But first and foremost, our worship service is about the people of God. And if they come in and feel comfortable, then in my, according to my conviction, we're not worshiping God the right way because the true worship of God should never make an unbeliever comfortable. What do we see in 1 Corinthians? The true believer walks in, he's struck to his heart, and he says, surely God is in this place. He's fearful. He's convicted. Because he sees the worship of God's people. He's made uncomfortable. And he realizes that he is out of place. So our philosophy of ministry here is that worship is for the people of God, the church, and that our calling is to go out into the world Not make the church attractive for them to come to us. And it goes hand in hand with this right here. That if we follow our natural, even common sense inclinations, instead of the word of God, carefully, we're gonna get worship wrong. All right, three minutes. Three minutes. If you have a question, just raise your hand. Okay? Because I'm not going to stop and say But if you have questions, raise your hand. Lastly here, our doctrine of sin will affect how we view what is going on when we worship. I've talked about this a lot. But is worship about us doing something for God or Him doing something for us or to us? In some sense, yes, we're offering praises to God. Without a doubt. But ultimately, our conviction here is that God in worship is doing something for us. That these are things that build us up. We talked about, or Brett talked about it, Pastor Brett, Pastor Shaw. There we go. It's a funny story, Sophie. In seminary, uh, Greek one, our Greek professor was, he just had a unique way of calling on people, but he used to call Brett Mr. Shaw. And he called on, he knew Greek. Brett had already had Greek, so he knew a lot of the answers. It was always, Mr. Shaw, could you parse this for us? Mr. Shaw. Always stuck in my mind, but... (laughs) Pastor Shaw, Mr. Shaw, last week talked about the means of grace. How God uses these things to pour grace into our lives. And that worship, our church service, is not simply an arena where you come to do things for Him to express your love and devotion to God, which unfortunately is so much of worship music today, talking about how much we love Jesus, right? How much we've experienced Jesus, instead of extolling Him for His greatness and what He has done. In a sense, I think you can go back to is worship grace-centered or work-centered? Is it something we do for God, or is worship mainly, chiefly, about what God does for us? Is the emphasis in our worship on God's redemptive acts in history or on our experience in life change? I'm so much better now. That's what I want to sing about. Or do you want to sing about what God has done for us? So our doctrine of sin will affect how we approach worship. What we see is going on. Whether this is something we need in order to put off sin and put on righteousness... Or is this something where we just come to sing about our own life story? So the conclusion. Hey, I made it to the conclusion. One minute to spare. Properly understanding our sin and need for grace affects how we worship as well as why we worship the way that we do. God has attached His promises to certain means of grace. Again, I'll refer you to last week's lessons, it's on the website. Which serve to strengthen our faith and build us up in holiness. So not only do the Scriptures instruct, direct, command us in the specifics of worship because of our idolatry, our inclination towards idolatry, but there are only certain things that God has attached His promises to and a right understanding of our sin leads us to devote ourselves to these specific things in such a manner. God has not promised to bless underwater basket weaving in His name for the strengthening and building up of your faith. But He has promised to bless the preaching of the Word, the prayers of the saints, the singing of the Word, the singing of hymns to Him, the reading of Scripture, the observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are things that He's attached His promises to. And we know that when we participate in them by faith, He will bless them to the nourishment and building up of our souls. But if we do other things, we have no such promise. And we fall into the danger of, or we have the danger of falling into idolatry. So we must form our doctrine of worship related to the doctrine of sin. I'll take questions in a second, but next week, this is just where we're heading next week, in order to see how the doctrine of the gospel informs our worship as well. See a hand for a question. God and Father, we do thank you for your word and that though we are sinners, you have not left us alone, you've given us your spirit, but you've also given us your truth. And as the Lord Jesus Christ prayed in that beautiful high priestly prayer, Lord, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Lord, we know that you use your word to bring about in us holiness and righteousness and conformity to your will. So we pray, Lord, that even in our worship, that you would guide us by your word and that you would sanctify us so that we might adorn the gospel and bring glory to your great name. Father, be with us this next hour as we do turn to worship with the saints. We ask for your blessing to be upon it. And Lord, may we, by your spirit, prepare our hearts even now for the hearing of your word and the singing of your great name. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.